Welcome to the latest episode of Schneps Connects. I'm your host, Josh Schneps. We have a big personality with us today, Joey Jackson, who's a nationally recognized attorney who has for over two decades represented individuals and labor unions in state and federal court. Jackson and his associates have represented a diverse group of clients as trial lawyers representing clients who have fallen into high stakes personal and professional crises, as well as those who have average citizens in need of his fierce and benevolent counsel. After graduating from Hofstra Law School, he was appointed assistant district attorney under Robert Morgenthau. He also has frequently appeared on various cable news programs over the last decade. He's currently employed by CNN as a legal analyst. So Joey, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much for joining. It is great to be here, Josh. You said big personality. My personality pales in comparison to yours. I'm glad to be on your show. I was saying to Josh real <laughs> quick before you get into it, he's got this Brooklyn Bridge behind him. So I was hating a little bit because I'm from the Bronx, you know? So we call it Crooklyn in the neighborhood, but I try to insult Brooklyn people as much as I can. And I was also telling Josh, I got to be careful now because the new mayor is from Brooklyn. So I got to clean up my act a little bit. It's all good. Listen, you have to be careful. We have twice the population of the Bronx, you know? But we can take you on just the same. That's how we do, you know? I love it. (laughs) Well, talk about growing up in the Bronx and really, you know, how you went from growing up in the Bronx to getting into your career as a trial attorney. Yeah, it was a great time. I had a lot of, you know, just wonderful friendships, relationships. And it was really interesting because where I grew up, you know, was primarily African-American and Latino. But then you walk a few blocks up and then you had the Italian neighborhood. And then also in years that went by, you had more Jamaican influence that came into the neighborhood. And then you had the Latin influence that came into the neighborhood. And that was one of the beauties and remains one of the beauties of the Bronx. You want your Italian food, you go to Arthur Avenue and and be good. You go to the Northeast Bronx, you want some of that jerk chicken, some of that, you know, beef patties, the Jamaican food, you're all good. You go more towards the South, you get that Latin food and, you know, it's a great place. I had a wonderful experience. So in the neighborhood, I had my people and then I literally, my school, I went to St. Francis of Rome. I'm Catholic. I was you know, born and raised Catholic, uh, first to eighth grade. Then I went to Iona Prep, another Catholic school. And then you had a different influence of people. So I think the influence of the boogie down, I had the best of both worlds, right? I had my school peoples, I had my home peoples and I would mix and match them up because my school friends would come over And I'd always enjoy the interchange between different personalities, different cultures and everything else. A lot of people, the Bronx gets a bad rap, but I think it's a tremendous place. It did so much for me. And I had a lot of good people and mentors and friendships. And obviously my family was great. My family's been great. My dad was a police officer and then he went to the fire department. My mother was a nurse, blue collar, you know, great workers. My older brother I have, our older sister, we all grew up in the household. And so, you know, the Bronx will always be a part of me, my good man. So what point did you realize that you want to be an attorney? Because I realized in college, if you decide to be an attorney, it was a big commitment. Not only do you have to go back to school, but you have to read a lot. Yeah, you have to read too much. You know, it was interesting because... When I was growing up, I never really took school too seriously. And it was really interesting. I remember being in high school and I remember one of my English professors, an English teacher, they call him in high school. And he had asked me a question in class and I kind of poo-pooed it and gave kind of a half answer. And he embarrassed me, but it hit me, right? Because words sometimes are powerful. He didn't say anything derogatory. 
But he said, you know, it really is a shame when you have people who have a significant amount of intelligence who like to hide it because apparently it's not cool, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, wow, damn, he kind of called me out in front of the class. And I never was one of these students just that would excel or do anything else. It was funny because my people in the Bronx would call me the professor because I was, you know, real smart there. But then I'd go to school and I'd be like average or less. But it all was in applying myself because I never really applied myself. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, right? When I was growing up, I wasn't one of these kids who was six years old saying, I want to be a lawyer one day. I had no clue what I wanted to do. And there were so many things I wasn't good at. So when I went to college, which I wasn't going to go to, I wanted to go to Broadway, you know, because I thought I would one day be a star. So what happened was, is my mother said, you're not doing that. We're going to school. You're going to school. So she looked for this school. It's called SUNY Brockport. It's a state university. The price was right, far enough away, right by Rochester and Buffalo. And so we went up there for one of these orientation weekends. We got there. It was so crazy. 30-second story. We got there. I took the rental car once we got there, left my mother on campus, went to party with everybody else in the school, <laughs> met so many people. I literally stayed out all night. And this was before cell phones and text messaging and pages. I got in at like seven in the morning. My mother was like, what? And I tried to get to sleep. She said, you're going to the orientation. We sat in the front row of all of the different orientation programs. And she literally elbowed me in my ribs to keep me up. Little did she know that I loved the school so much I was going. And so to answer your question, she got me to get into that school. They accepted me conditionally because I've done so poorly in high school because I just never studied. And so I had to go there for the summer preceding the fall <laughs> semester. I did really well. And it was at that time, in direct answer to your question, there was this course. It was called Self College and Career, where you analyze yourself. And I would do things in chemistry, eh, epic fail, math, eh, can't do it. Biology, eh, can't do it. But I always knew that I liked to argue. I liked to the give and exchange of the different people that I'd be around. I like to communicate. I enjoy writing. And so self-college and career, which was the course to have you focus internally. Who are you? What do you want to do? It really brought me to the law. And then by a stroke of luck, when I got to the school, I met a person who was involved in the student legal program, who was an attorney local to the town, who's my mentor and works at my firm now, right? This is a 35-year relationship. And so he let me work at his firm. He mentored me, developed me. I, I got interested in law and uh, the rest is history. So it takes a village. You know, a lot of times you don't know what you want to do, where you want to be, but you've got great kind people regardless. I know the world's a crazy place, Josh. I know that crazy things are going on everywhere. I know there's a lot of bad news that we hear, but there are really kind, humane, decent people who help others. And I model myself really after him to try to give a leg up and a helping hand to anyone who needs it, wants it. And so that was a valuable experience and a turning point for me that really directed and catapulted me to the legal field. Well, it sounds like a lot of us that get some uh, tough love when needed from the mother. It doesn't <laughs> you, you hurt, know, right? Mama Dukes is always going to be on the case, right? They got to make sure that their kids are doing the right things. And she did a great job. My sister's a nurse. My brother's a banker. They're working hard. I think you instill certain qualities in kids and you let them know, look, you got to do this. If you want to do anything and you want to be self-sufficient and you want to be able to make it in this world, you just got to give it your best effort. You can't, as I was doing, you know, do it half, I guess I could say half-assed, right? You, you just got to really step up and move it. And so I tried to do that. And, I, you know, it was interesting. I learned that when I didn't work, I did poorly. And when I worked hard, I did well. And that might be obvious and people are listening saying, well, of course, 
No, because I was around some kids who didn't study at all and they didn't do anything and they did well. But for me, I found when I worked hard, there was a direct correlation between hard work and getting it done. And, you know, I, I really credit my parents for that and my brother and my sister. So being a lawyer, you get to really have a lot of impact. Are there any cases or things in particular throughout your career that you're most proud of or that you could share with our audience? So many, Josh. You know, one of the benefits and the joys of being a lawyer is the ability to impact people's lives in a positive way. And the reality is, is that, listen, when people come to seek legal counsel, they're in very difficult times in their lives, right? And so you want someone who could take the matter seriously, who can be prepared, who can give every effort, who can be concerned about you and who could work with you to the extent possible on changing the outcomes. And when you do criminal defense, you're dealing with people's liberty, interest and livelihoods. And when you do it, labor and employment law, both of which are my areas, you're dealing with people's jobs and people need their jobs to support their families and their children and their husbands and their wives. And so those are really two big critical areas. And so I find it every day, my dad, may he rest in peace. He always told me he got into some legal issues of his own when he was a younger man. And he said to me when I was doing the law thing, he said, every time that you go to work, particularly when you step foot in a courtroom, you have a major chance to change someone's life, to change the trajectory of someone's life, to alter what they're doing, to really be an agent of what's good. And he said, Take that seriously, do your work, be prepared, treat every client, give them every bit of your energy and services and talent. And that's been something that I've tried to do, right? And you're not gonna win every case as a lawyer. You know, I've been blessed and fortunate to win a whole heck of a lot, which is a beautiful thing, you know, under God's grace, but there's so many cases. I'll tell you one in particular that stands out and it happens not to be a labor case. It happens to be a criminal case. Same principles apply and I'll be brief with this. So a guy comes to me, he's a law enforcement corrections officer, and he was out at a nightclub and he's accused of attempted murder. How? He was accused of murder because they said that he stabbed someone at the nightclub. Now, as the story goes, and it's a long one, but I'll make it short, he literally was on his, just bought a home in Queens, right? Was on his way home just to relax after doing a double tour at Rikers Island. And what happens is, is he goes to a pizza shop and he runs into a friend of his he hadn't seen in a long time. And his friend's like, hey, come out with me, come out with me. And he's like, no, I'm just going to go home. I'm tired. I want to relax. My wife's away for the weekend. I just want to take it easy. So he's like, come on, I haven't seen you. I haven't seen you. So he meets him at the club and they get into allegedly, according to the police, a dispute. Okay. now here's the issue. The issue is, is that my client was an African-American, dark skinned male wearing a purple shirt, very short and very muscular. Okay. the reason I raised that issue was because in criminal cases, you have sometimes an identification issue. Right. And in that identification issue, what you have is people pointing you out saying, hey, you're the guy. So long story short, there are four witnesses who ID him as the guy. When the police come, they search him and they get the knife that he has in his pocket. They do a DNA assessment and it happens to be the same blood as on the victim. So he comes to see me. He's crying. I'm going to lose my house, my job. I didn't do it. I, I said, what do you mean you didn't do it? They got the blood from the knife, right? out of your pocket and we got four witnesses who say it's you. So one thing when I investigated the case, I found that the four witnesses were known to each other. I said, this can't be right. Literally, if you're at a nightclub of 300 people, you might have a patron who sees them, a bystander, a waiter, a waitress, a security officer, someone who's disconnected, but all of them were friends. The other thing is that when you go to a nightclub, obviously you drink, that's a problem. 
So when I cross-examined them, I was able to determine one guy was drunk, one guy really didn't see it. He said his friend told him. And the killer was the guy who got stabbed when he came to testify said, he did it, he did it, he did it. In the medical records, when they were treating him, that is the attending emergency medical services, they asked him, hey, what happened? And they wrote down in their book, he didn't see what happened. He thinks he was cut. Someone behind him cut him. But on the stand, he was saying it was him. So I said, sir, it's fair to say that you were interviewed before you lost consciousness. You wouldn't have lied at that time. You told what you knew. So he changed his story. Well, I thought it was him. They told me it was him. Here's the kicker. And this concludes it. So now I have to deal, because the witnesses are discredited, I have to deal with the issue involving the DNA in the knife. How do we deal with it? There were 12 officers who arrived at the scene. The officer who took the knife and Pat Frist and my client was the same officer who ultimately went to the victim, took the victim who was bleeding profusely, put him on the stretcher, put him into the ambulance. So that's a contamination issue. So when I was cross-examining the officer, I said, look, you're concerned right, about a person's safety at his job one. Yes, and you got to the scene and you wanted to help. Yes, and you weren't concerned about you. You were concerned about saving someone else's life. Yes, and that's why you went immediately for the victim, right? Yes, and he was bleeding, correct? Right, but you were brave and didn't care, right? No, you just went to help him and you got him onto the stretcher. I did. You got him into the ambulance. I did. And then you wanted to find out who did it. I did. So you went and got my client. I did. And you got took the knife. I did. And you looked at it. I did. And you opened it. I did. And then he was like, oh, so ultimately we were able to conclude that the knife was contaminated. He was found not guilty. And it was a teachable wow. moment. And I say that not to pat myself on the back, but just to show the world that things are not always what they seem. And when you peel the envelope back and you peel back the onion and you really look and you really evaluate, sometimes you could find out the truth. And that's what happened here. And that the truth was found. But it was a turning point for me, certainly a turning point for him. He kept his job, he kept his home, he kept his wife, he kept his livelihood. And so I was really proud about it. Talk about a turning moment in someone's life. But now we know why you're on TV, because that sounded like one of those crime stories that you would watch on TV. And uh, you actually are on TV on CNN. So partly I don't even have to ask. I could tell why you're on TV, but I have to imagine that that wasn't easy to get to be on television. You know, they can pick from anyone that they want across the country. So talk a little bit about your role with CNN and how that came about. You're very kind, Josh. And you know, what happens is, is people see one thing and they think, oh, you know, man, you got it easy, you got it made. You know, I was on TV for about five years, unpaid, just toiling, doing what I had to do before I eventually got my first contract. And so, you know, it was one of those things that just evolved. And people ask me, well, how did it happen? How it happened was, I literally was on the Grand Central Parkway. I was driving and I get a phone call blindly and it was Fox News. And I say, yeah, hello. And they're asking me about the case. I think it was OJ Simpson's case, not the Nicole Brown Simpson. It was the one where he stole his own Heisman Trophy. Could you come in and comment? I'm like, comment, I'm not his lawyer. They're like, no, we know you're not his lawyer, but we need comments because we do these legal panels. And I'm like, but I have no connection to the case. We know you're not connected to the case. We do these legal panels. But why don't you call his lawyers? We can call his lawyers, but we're calling you. Literally, I was talking my way out of TV because I didn't know the nature <laughs> of the game. And it was a very kind, very sweet booker. They call them bookers. They book attorneys. And she said, let me just explain to you who's my a very good friend to this day because she got me started. And she said, no, let me just explain to you. We do these TV panels. You don't have to be connected to the case. You don't have to know the attorneys. You don't have to be involved with the participants. We just need you to educate our audience. We were doing research. We came across your website. We thought that you might be a person who can come in and do this. And so I'm just asking if you'd be interested. So I said, sure. So literally, as TV goes, my first 
four appearances were canceled and I'm like, I'm never going to do it because now she's got me excited, right? TV is one of these things where you think you're going to go on air and then some breaking news story stop, you know, happens and they're like, Josh, thank you. Never mind. You know, as something else goes on in the world, they say, oh, we right. thank you. But next time, next week, next year. And so ultimately I got on TV and started doing my thing. I worked for five years for Fox, not working as an employee, but just them calling me where they sent a nice car and they got me to court, they got me home and they did all those things, but they mm -hmm. weren't paying me. And then, a, you know, CNN, HLN and another news outlet uh, determined, you know, that they wanted to give me a shot. And so ultimately they did and rest is history. I got offered a contract okay. and here we are. So I love it. So you just never know what one thing will lead to another. You never can tell ever, ever. So, you touched on it a little bit, but share a little bit about the work that you do representing labor and labor workers. I would love to. I love that. And for that, hold on one second. I'm just going to need some juice. Okay. <laughs> so let me get some juice and then I'm going to tell you all about the labor and labor workers. All right. So what happens is, is that these guys are the salt of the earth. They're working hard. They oftentimes get a bad rap. And it's one of the privileges that I have. So what happened is, is that, you know, I started my career as a prosecutor in Manhattan and I enjoyed that a lot because it gave you the ability to have pretty unique trial skills and deal with cases. And I think if you could deal with trials and cross-examine people and interview people and deal with pressure and judges and juries that you can do okay for yourself. And so I thought it was a great training ground. And then I transitioned out of there to work in a law firm that dealt with law enforcement unions and other types of unions. And I started doing that work. And so in doing that, that's where I said, you know, these are blue collar workers working hard every day, oftentimes accused of things regarding their job that they didn't do. Oftentimes in being accused of things they did do, you have people embellishing to make it sound worse than it really was, which I didn't think was fair. And so I started off some time ago doing that more than 20 years ago. And eventually, just in working hard, having great relationships and everything else, sometimes the younger guys take over. And so ultimately, the younger guys did. You know, they had asked me to think about representing them. And I certainly gave that a lot of thought. I left my firm and I started a firm of my own. And they were kind enough to have me submit a proposal and come before their boards and present what we can do. And I did that with regard to three major unions and they hired myself and the firm to represent them. And we're just hopeful to continue to do the great work, continue to build upon the accounts that we have and continue to have the privilege of defending workers and protecting their rights and interests and doing the best we can for them and their families. And that's really how it came about. So here I am. What year did you start your own firm? I started my firm in 2000. I actually, January 12th of 2000. Originally, I had left in 2019, the year before that. And I went and I started it with a partner at the time. But our visions were different. And with me, Josh, I just think that, and I'm not suggesting my vision was any better or worse than my partner's. But you get to live one time and you should live it on your terms and you should live it in the way that you think is most appropriate. And you should set internal protocols for how you should be fighting for your clients and unions and people in the way that you think is best. And when somebody differs from that, it's OK. But, you know, then they should do what they want to do and I should do what I want to do. And so I started in January 2019 with him. And then we sort of agreed in about September of that year, October became apparent that we just had different views of how to build this, how to work and how to be most efficient. I'm sure his view was a fantastic one and I'm sure he's doing very well. 
but I just thought I needed to do it another way. And I did. And we were blessed with landing a few, uh, you know, very important unions that we work hard with every day. You know, I got people out there, lawyers who you know, I recruit and work with and deal with. We've got legal interns. We've got paralegals. We got a really nice operation in Midtown, but I couldn't do it without the hard work of the lawyers that I work with and the, their good minds that make really the machine run every day. Well, Joey, I wish I had another hour that we could talk about like your cases, because I can tell that you know how to tell a story. And, and certainly that's probably part of your job being a trial attorney. My dad was a trial attorney. That's so it's awful. almost like, you know, whenever you kind of need to keep people's attention, I feel like telling the story is probably the best way to do it. It is indeed. You got to tell a jury a story that's relatable, that's logical, that makes sense. And I think you want them when they're there, right, giving up their time to be somewhat entertained. I remember, and I know what concluded, Josh, but I remember a judge in Nassau County had a case in Nassau saying to me, Mr. Jackson, you're going to be here for two weeks in front of me. It was an attempted murder case. And she says, I want to be entertained. If I'm entertained, you're going to have a great time. If I'm not, there's going to be a problem. Uh, but <laughs> that's what we do. And, you know, I'll just conclude with saying it's a great experience being a lawyer. It's a great opportunity to do a lot of good. And when I go out and I deal and I talk to people and they say, hey, you know, Mr. Jackson, you may not remember me, but you know, you saved my job X amount of years ago. I remember being at a boxing match a couple of years ago and there was a gentleman who was the head of their security detail who I dealt with years before. And he said to me, you know, I wouldn't be in this job if it wasn't for you. And he took me back to meet all the boxers afterwards. And it just makes you realize and understand my father's statement that he made to me in doing this. And that is that you can really influence and affect a lot of lives if you do your job properly. So I'm just trying to work hard every day like you, Josh, and like all your people to do the best we can do to live our best lives and to improve as many lives as we can along the way. Joey, I really appreciate you sharing your story and your career with us and wish you all the best. I appreciate you, my good man. Give my best to all. All right. I sure will. Make sure to subscribe to Schneps Connects wherever you get your podcasts or stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com.